This is Guns and Butter. So there's there are clearly big interests that are planning the future and what it's going to look like and it appears to be all about control a sort of totalitarian control or control by technocrats it's not going to be a democracy it's controlled by big corporations you know you used to hear about like David Rockefeller I think said at one time he thanked other major media for telling it the way they wanted it told and going along with their plans where they used to discuss the whole new world order thing and now they've recharacterized it as the great global reset but it's basically the same thing a totalitarian thing where it won't be us in control and it won't be individual countries in control it will be it will be a corporatocracy I'm Bonnie Faulkner today on Guns and Butter Ellen Brown. Today's show, Financial System in Transition. Ellen Brown is an attorney, researcher, author, and founder of the Public Banking Institute. She is the author of The Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free, and From Austerity to Prosperity, The Public Bank Solution. She is a prolific financial journalist. Today we discuss the new relationship between the U.S. Treasury, the Federal Reserve's Central Bank, and BlackRock Financial Management, which is administering the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or CARES Act, on behalf of the Federal Reserve. Ellen Brown, welcome again. Oh, thanks, Bonnie. Great to talk to you. I've just read one of your latest articles, Meet BlackRock, the New Great Vampire Squid. Before we talk about BlackRock Financial, I'd like you to break down the nuts and bolts of how the U.S. financial system operates. Let's start with the U.S. government treasury as opposed to the Federal Reserve. Could you describe how each of these entities have traditionally operated, obviously since 1913 when the Federal Reserve was created, and how they interact with each other? Okay, well, the treasury is basically... It holds the government's money, the Congress's money, so it issues bonds. Well, the Treasury takes in our taxes, of course, and then is not enough coming in in the way of taxes, then the Treasury can issue bonds um, that are then sold on the open market or can be sold to the central bank, and that's how we make up the make up the balance. So right now we have a federal debt of $26.5 trillion, which is huge. And the Treasury itself, um, at one time, like when we were colonies, the Treasuries actually issued money directly. And I wrote my first book on this subject, Web of Debt. That's what I wrote about, that we really should go back to that system where the Treasury would issue the money directly. But now we have a central bank, which is the deep pocket that is able to issue money. They can buy debt, in other words. 
so the central bank can buy treasury debt or not. It doesn't have to buy the bonds issued by Congress or issued by the treasury. So the treasury is really the, directly the banker or the manager of the money of Congress, whereas the central bank, the Federal Reserve, is uh, the treasury's bank or Congress's bank. So what does the Federal Reserve actually do? Does the Federal Reserve lend money to the Treasury? Yes. It buys the bonds of the Treasury. So the bonds, you know, are debt. They're bundles of debt. And uh, they're supposedly sold on the open market, which means the open market means where anybody could buy them. You could go to Treasury Direct and buy the bonds yourself. And the central bank can go there and buy the bonds as well. The central bank or the Federal Reserve is also the bank of the Treasury, but the Treasury is not allowed to write overdrafts on its account at the central bank. So the the Treasury really doesn't have the power to issue money or to, if it could write an overdraft on its account, for example, it could issue money indirectly, but it, it doesn't have that power. That power is really with the central bank, which is supposedly independent of Congress and doesn't have to do what Congress says, but Congress set up the central bank. <laughs> so so Congress has the power to change the rules, but it never seems to. It allows the central bank to be independent. So I'm not quite sure what, what you want me to answer, but well, um, when you say that the Treasury issues bonds, are you talking about Treasury notes that are sold worldwide? Yes, the notes or, you know, there are various forms of bonds. There's the 10-year Treasury notes. There's uh, um, the short-term Treasuries. But there are various forms of debt that particularly big institutional investors like to buy. Or there are these banks that are required to buy the government's debt, and they are the ones that deal directly with the central bank. So does the U.S. Treasury really need the Federal Reserve to to lend it money or to buy its bonds? Well, the way it's set up right now, it does, but it could, technically, it could just issue money directly well, that the government can issue money. It's got the power in the Constitution to issue money. Right now, we give that power to the central bank, and the central bank issues money by buying debt. So it's always a debt to Congress, but it wouldn't have to be. Um, the central bank or the Treasury, either one could issue money directly and do something like universal basic income or like this $1,200 that we all just got, they could do that routinely month after month. And I've also written that this would not be inflationary. And the reason it wouldn't, where most of our money comes from, it's not created by the central bank either. Most dollars are actually created by private banks when they make loans. So if you go to the bank to take out, let's say you want to get a mortgage to buy a house, uh, the bank will just write that number into your account. They don't borrow it from anywhere. They don't take it out of anyone else's account or 
they don't even necessarily need the deposits. They're required to balance their books at the end of the day, but um, all the banks are doing this, making loans of money that they just write into accounts. And so let's say your bank makes a loan to you of $100,000 and that check goes into your seller's account in another bank. Well, that bank might have made a $100,000 mortgage loan as well, which might find its way into the first bank. So all the banks are doing this. So if the bank is lucky and gets as much coming in as is going out, the books balance and they don't have to borrow anywhere. but where they have borrowed traditionally is from each other. If they had excess reserves, they had a reserve requirement, which has now been waived as of March. Um, There's no longer a reserve requirement for keeping deposits in the bank at all. But it used to be you had to meet your reserve requirement, and then if you couldn't do that, if you didn't have enough reserves, then you could borrow from other banks that had excess reserves. That was the Fed funds market. And banks quit doing that after 2008 because they didn't trust each other because some banks were bankrupt and nobody knew exactly where the bodies were buried. So they quit borrowing from each other and started borrowing in the repo market, which is a secured market supposedly backed by you have to post collateral in order to borrow there. But then the lenders didn't like lending in the repo market because it got invaded by the hedge funds. And last September, the repo market collapsed. Basically, the interest rate went up to 10%, which was too high for the banks. So the Federal Reserve had to step in, and it backstopped the repo market. So that's one of the interesting things that happened in March was that the Federal Reserve decided to throw open their discount window. (laughs) It is all very complicated. But the discount window is where banks could go to borrow directly from the Federal Reserve if they were needed an emergency loan. But the reason they didn't do it was that it was at a penalty rate. So everybody knew that if you borrowed at the discount window, you were in trouble, that nobody else wanted to lend to you because you have to pay like a half a percentage more if you borrowed directly from the Fed. But in March, the Federal Reserve threw open the discount window, said, come one, come all. Any bank in good standing could borrow at 0.25%, which is like almost free. So you can get, banks can get virtually free credit at the discount window now. So what I've written about is that this is a way that states and cities can, that are in trouble because of this whole coronavirus um, disaster that we're in and all states and cities are struggling now with their budgets what they could do is set up their own publicly owned banks and borrow directly from the discount window at 0.25 percent very cheaply well what advantages are there to having a private central bank or federal reserve or are there any advantages well the central bank does a lot right now The dollar, of course, is basically the global reserve currency, and the central bank interacts with other central banks around the world and provides them with dollars, um, euro dollars, as they're called, or makes loans of dollars to other central banks because they all need them, particularly right now when there's a global economic downturn. So the whole banking system is useful and the central bank is the 
top of the banking system. It lends to all the banks or, or the Fed. You know, it manages the money that flows between banks and flows everywhere. And its mandates are to maintain the stability of the currency, which basically means keeping prices relatively stable so you know what you can buy with your dollars. And it's supposed to maintain full employment, but it never really achieves that. In fact, those two those two mandates are competing because it used to be thought that if you had full employment, that that would create inflation because everybody would have money to spend and then you would have too much demand relative to supply, like too many people would have money in their pockets and they would go out and spend and that would drive prices up. But that whole theory has been the Phillips curve, et cetera, has all been shown to be false. And so even the Federal Reserve has rejected that whole idea. Um, just the central bankers meet every year at Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and we just met last week. And Jerome Powell, who is now chairman of the Federal Reserve, basically said that they weren't going to worry about the inflation rate. Their goal for a number of years has been 2%. And they never even get up that high. And so they were they were saying they're not going to worry if they go over a little bit. They're going to just average out the inflation. So really what they're saying is they want Congress to spend some money and to borrow from the Fed and to put some more money into the economy. And that that's what I would recommend. In fact, that's what I thought I would write about next, that it really the central bank wants Congress to spend and clearly that, well, with the CARES bailout, clearly the big corporations got a bailout, the stock market got a bailout, but the little businesses and the little people didn't get a bailout and we need that extra money in order to have demand to replace the demand that we used to have to get the system back functioning properly and I think the central bank thinks that too and they want they want Congress to spend so that they can get some more money out there. It sounds like the Fed would be happy to buy those bonds if Congress would spend some more. I'm speaking with attorney and author Ellen Brown. Today's show, Financial System in Transition. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, then, what is the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, the CARES Act that you've mentioned, a stimulus package that was passed through the U.S. Congress in March of 2020? What did it authorize? Uh, well, the, the biggest winners were the big corporations and the stock market. But I guess the biggest chunk of money actually went to small businesses. Of course, uh, individuals, we all got $1,200, you know, a one-time payment. But that doesn't go very far for people who have lost their business or who have lost their jobs. Um, it was actually a series of four different acts. When you put them all together, originally it was... $2.2 trillion, but when you put them all together, I think it was over $3 trillion. There, there seems to be consensus that they need to do a follow-up to get some more money into, you know, there needs to be more demand. People need money in their pockets, and everybody knows that, but the Congress can't seem to agree 
the Democrats want more money for the states. The states got out of that whole deal 150 billion, actually, I think 200 billion by the time you add in all those four acts. But that's only a very small percentage of the whole outlay, and the states are all in trouble. You know, their costs are up and their incomes are down because taxes are down. Businesses are out of business, so they don't have the money to pay taxes. And uh, there are all these extra costs for education and hospitals and, you know, all the things that go along with, well, they have unemployment insurance that the states also pay along with the federal government. So anyway, all the states need more money and all that all that Congress did for them was it was 150 billion that was divided among 50 states so that would be like an average of 3 billion dollars each and then the federal reserve set up this municipal liquidity facility that would make loans to the states or local governments but it was at a penalty rate so it was like when banks used to borrow from the discount window where they had to pay an extra um, 0.5% or so on top of the market rates. So the, the states aren't aren't using the municipal liquidity facility except Illinois used it, but nobody else has borrowed there. So much of the money that was set aside in the CARES Act has not been used. One problem for the states was that the CARES Act said that the money that went to the states could not be used for anything that was in their budget before March. So everything that they do, they put in the budget first. So they couldn't really use this money except for things that were caused by the coronavirus, you know, by the pandemic itself. And so the governors themselves were complaining that much of that money was going to just go unused. I would argue they could use some of it to um, capitalize their own banks <laughs> because that would be something that wasn't in their prior budget. And then uh, and then they would have all the benefits that went to the, the banks. In March, the uh, Federal Reserve made the discount window open to all banks in good standing and they got rid of the reserve requirement and they were very flexible on the capital requirement. So they made a lot of concessions for the banks. So the banks are being treated much better than the states. So if they want to be treated like the states, they really need to have their own bank. Was asset manager BlackRock Financial involved in the passing of the CARES Act legislation in Congress? Well, one suspects. I mean, they certainly got a good deal out of the whole thing. Uh, BlackRock is the world's largest asset manager. They've got $7 trillion in assets under management. Their big, where they get most of their money is from exchange-traded funds. And uh, they were, BlackRock was put in charge of the corporate bond, those um, special purpose vehicles, that were, that were all about corporate bonds. So that was about a trillion dollars of the bailout money or the loan money that would come from this $454 billion that was uh, part of the CARES Act that was used to fund these special purpose vehicles, 11 of them, one to go to the municipal liquidity facilities. But anyway, BlackRock, the only thing they've really spent was on the exchange-traded funds, which is BlackRock's big business. And that involves the 
the corporate bonds. So the exchange traded funds supposedly buy up the whole market. So you can buy a share, trades like stock, you can buy a share in the exchange traded fund and theoretically you bought a little bit of the whole market. But the problem is when, when all the, uh, when all the investors rush to get their money out, like they did in March, when people in general were worried about their, their savings or pulling money out of the stock market, then the exchange traded fund has to sell all those corporate bonds that make up its fund. And there were no buyers, so that was the problem. But they put BlackRock in charge of these corporate bond uh, special purpose vehicles and so what BlackRock did with the money, the only thing they did was to buy exchange-traded funds, which they and Vanguard and some, something else, State Street, I guess, the three big exchange-traded funds, they're, they're the biggest in the market, and BlackRock is definitely the biggest. So what it basically did was buy its own fund and buy the corporations uh, the, or the debt of the corporations that the BlackRock exchange traded fund buys, <laughs> if you if you follow what I'm saying. So basically, what they did was to buy their own their own stock or their own fund. Well, could you explain how? Uh, and you've written about this how BlackRock essentially bailed itself out with its new powers, specifically with regard to exchange traded funds or ETFs, and. Exactly what are ETFs? Is that like trading the whole market at once? Yeah, well, that's what I was saying. The fund buys, if it's a corporate bond fund, exchange-traded fund, then they buy up corporate bonds from all the big corporations. And if it's, you know, some other kind of fund, then they buy up stock of all that type of thing. But um, the corporate bond funds were instrumental in the stock market collapsing in March and so by buying the exchange traded funds they managed to basically save the stock market and save the funds. Um, interestingly it was BlackRock that suggested this whole way of putting a technocrat or a you know an unelected expert in charge of deciding what the Fed would buy they suggested that the previous year in a white paper that was presented to the the Jackson Hole meeting in the previous August. So that was kind of interesting that they set up their own role and then they they got delegated for this role. Well, exactly. Uh, the central bankers met in Jackson Hole, Wyoming in August of 2019 and BlackRock Financial Management gave a presentation at that meeting. What was the substance of BlackRock's message? Did they have a plan? Yeah, well, basically they said that, um, I mean, everybody or all the speakers at that meeting were saying that the central banks had lost their tools, that they needed more tools to to do what they're supposed to do, maintain the value of the currency, basically prevent inflation. So their stock tool has always been manipulating interest rates. Where they were already down to zero, there were some central banks were going into negative interest rates and it really wasn't working. So they needed other tools. So what this BlackRock proposal was, it was four 
former central bankers that now work for BlackRock. And um, what they proposed was that for an additional tool, that fiscal policy needed to be combined with monetary policy, which meant that Congress needed to spend more, basically what they're trying to encourage Congress to do right now. Congress would spend more and um, some technocrats, some unelected expert would be put in charge of deciding um, what to do with the money, how to allocate the, the funds. And then, of course, it would all be funded by the central bank. And that's what actually did happen in March. So so that it, it was, wasn't totally original. It was uh, something that was also done in 2008-2009 with the Maiden Lane facilities, which BlackRock was also in charge of. And through the Maiden Lane facilities, the Federal Reserve was able to buy toxic assets that they weren't allowed to buy under the Federal Reserve Act. So what they did was buy toxic assets off off of AIG, which was a big insurance company, and um, Bear Stearns, which is not a depository bank. It was a, an investment bank, but it was supposedly only depository banks were under the direct management of the central bank. So, so it was through these maiden lane facilities, which were also special purpose vehicles like the 11 just that just got set up, through the maiden lane facilities, uh, the central bank, the Fed, was able to help out AIG and Bear Stearns, which were going bankrupt and were actually were sort of triggering or signaling that we were in trouble in 2008. And that was the beginning. I think that was like Bear Stearns was in trouble in February and then AIG in September and then the, the big banks collapsed. And then we had the Great Recession. <laughs> so anyway, it was a, it was a model that, a, that BlackRock was already, had already been appointed to do, but it was just for those two little entities. And now they got the job for um, you know, a bigger market. Could you give us a brief history of BlackRock Financial, an asset manager? When was it founded and what functions does it perform? It was founded in 1988 and it was a offshoot of Blackstone, which um, is particularly notorious for having bought up all the defaulted properties you know after the 2008 crash they would they went around and bought up uh, homes that were in default and then they would rent them back at inflated they're still doing it renting them back at inflated prices to the people that used to think they owned them you know that are now renters so in Blackstone it was a big um, hedge fund so BlackRock Larry Fink is the chairman and he worked for Blackstone originally and, but where they really made their money was in these exchange-traded funds. And the way um, Larry Fink managed to, or the way BlackRock got to be a big ETF manager was uh, after 2008, he was in a position to buy these iShares from a, a British bank. iShares was a big ETF fund. <laughs> and so, so that's... That's where they got into the funds, but they also have this uh, this 
very sophisticated computer system called um, Aladdin, and it manages, so it's called a, a risk monitoring software, and it manages investments for investors in countries all around the world. So it manages $20 trillion worth of investments and then it's and then BlackRock has seven trillion directly under under management. So that's bigger than any bank in the world. The biggest banks in the world are in China, and that's even bigger than they are. So it's been called, um, you know, the world's largest shadow bank, or had various names. But anyway, it's huge, and it's uh, it really, in a way, controls the stock market because. Um, BlackRock goes in and buys, they, they own a, a portion or actually a controlling interest. But BlackRock and the other two exchange traded funds that are the big ones basically own a controlling interest in all the big corporations. And so they vote the shares and, uh, you know, make, make decisions. So one wonders, for example, how, how it is that all these countries went into lockdown all at once and who who is centrally located that could be pulling the strings and BlackRock is one one possibility because they are voting the shares of all these big corporations so they could be telling them you know what to do making big corporate decisions I'm speaking with attorney and author Ellen Brown today's show Financial System in Transition. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So BlackRock, do they perform functions on three levels? They own their own investments. They manage investments for clients. And then thirdly, somehow they manage or give advice to all of the pension funds and these huge funds? How does that work? Um, yeah, so they, they manage the pension funds. They manage the investments of the pension funds. So clearly they have an interest in having all their clients buy the same stuff. And since they have this software that manages risk for all these different clients in countries all around the world they can make sure that the you know the investment money all goes in the same place and those things go up you know there there are five big stocks that pretty much control the control the stock market the reason this the stock market keeps going up is these five big technical stocks google and um microsoft you know the big amazon alphabet is one but maybe alphabet is google i'm not sure <laughs> I'm not actually invested in that particular market. But anyway, so so by buying those big stocks and having their clients buy those big stocks, they can control what the market does pretty much. But yeah, so they they advise clients, but they also have these exchange traded funds that buy stocks or buy like the ones that they had control over under the CARES Act are the uh, corporate bonds. So they directed the Treasury with these um, special purpose vehicles, directed them on which corporate bonds to buy. 
and of course it would be the bonds of the big corporations that they also own an interest in or their clients own an interest in. And then what is BlackRock's new role with the Federal Reserve? Well, that's it. They they are the advisor or the asset manager for the Federal Reserve, so they're choosing which which bonds to buy or which corporate bonds to buy. So it kind of lets, first of all, it lets the central bank off the hook. So the people can't say the central bank is playing favorites and deciding to support one corporation and, or one sector and not another sector. They delegated that to this third party, uh, a technocrat or a, you know, a technical expert, which is BlackRock, their, their advisor. So that it's BlackRock that makes those decisions. What, what uh, bonds? What bonds the Treasury will sell to the central bank, and then through these SPVs, the central bank buys them. And it was uh, the special purpose vehicles are capitalized with 454 billion from the Treasury, but that allows that money can be leveraged at 10 to one. So that was good for four and a half trillion in credit. But interestingly, the credits haven't really been used. It was the fact that that the central bank said that they would buy these corporate bonds that made the market go up because I guess it just made everybody feel more confident and confident to to buy the bonds or to buy the market. Well, so you said that by using BlackRock to display the funds that the CARES Act is making available, it lets the central bank off the hook for uh, playing favorites, but then again, it empowers BlackRock to play favorites, right? Yeah, totally. Now, are asset managers more powerful than banks? Well, BlackRock certainly is. In fact, BlackRock owns a controlling interest in all the big banks so yep they're very powerful too powerful they should not be so powerful i mean they should they should have been regulated as a shadow bank as a you know a systemically important or systemically risky entity but they weren't but they should be because look how powerful they are you have pointed out that the federal reserve can only purchase safe federally guaranteed assets. As a private company, can BlackRock purchase more risky assets not covered by federal insurance? Yes. Basically, it allows the Fed to either buy or to lend lend against assets that it wasn't authorized to lend against under the Federal Reserve Act. Now, how do you make money buying toxic assets, or do you? What do they do with these toxic assets that they buy? Well, after 2008 and 2009, after that whole crash, they, the toxic assets were these mortgage-backed securities that contained a lot of um, debt that didn't get repaid. But the Federal Reserve said and that they actually made money on the deal. So so they sold the homes, I guess, or sold the assets. They sold the mortgage-backed securities at a profit in the end, 
or they did take in enough to pay for for these mortgage-backed securities. So, but the point of doing it this time around would be to prop up the stock market and to save the big corporations like the airlines and things that we really do need, but they're private. <laughs> I mean, I would argue that they probably shouldn't be private or that what could happen is that the central bank could buy or the government through the central bank could buy controlling interests in all those all those things that we share communications transportation including airlines you know in many countries airlines are owned by the government or at least the government owns their own airlines and railroads all that stuff roads um I think banking should also be something that's a public utility. It's something we all share. Money is, you know, the flow of money is something that that we, we all have an interest in. And right now, obviously, everybody knows that Wall Street is sucking huge profits out of that whole deal. And what do they do for that? Nothing that the government itself couldn't do or that we couldn't do through a public banking system. What evidence is there that the economy was already starting to tank before the virus was made a public issue? Oh, well, last September, when the repo market crashed, the um, interest rate went to 10% at one point. And this was supposedly because the lenders in the repo market did not trust the market, and so they pulled their money out. And the lenders included the three or four big banks that basically hold all our deposits. The biggest was J.P. Morgan. And one argument was that J.P. Morgan was withholding their funds, not lending in the repo market because they wanted to force Congress to give them a better deal on the capital requirement that, you know, was imposed after 2008, which is is there to prevent another crisis like the 2008 crisis. But anyway, the... The repo market crashed, and uh, the Federal Reserve stepped in and was was either lending trillions of dollars or offering trillions of dollars. In March, they were offering a trillion dollars a day into the repo market. Now, there were no takers. They didn't have to make a trillion dollars in loans, but they were making that money available basically for the banks because the banks are their responsibility. But then they fixed that by... Uh, opening the discount window to the banks so the banks didn't have to go to the repo market anymore. So really the repo market apparently isn't being used much anymore. But that was a sign that the whole system was in trouble um, as early as last September. Well, could you explain what the repo market is? Isn't that uh, like overnight lending where you have to inject liquidity into the market? Yes, that's where big banks and hedge funds and all the big institutions, that's where they get their liquidity. The thing that causes um, like a global economic crash is a, a liquidity crisis. This is where the, the whole basis of banking is that they're always borrowing short and lending long, and that's that's the risky part of banking. So if you picture It's a Wonderful Life, where Jimmy Stewart was, uh, you know, borrowing from the neighbors, and the neighbors all took their money out, 
but the money had already been lent for like you you make these 30-year mortgage loans with money that the depositors think they can get out right away and that's a liquidity crisis because the lenders don't want to lend they want their money back but you were already lent the money out so the repo market was where the banks were getting their money to backstop their loans like their 30-year mortgages they didn't really have the deposits or if they didn't have the deposits they would go to the repo market and so what what they would do is put up bonds um, or short-term debt like overnight debt so for a very like 0.25 percent the same thing they can now borrow at the discount window for um, they would they would put up some sort of security that was acceptable to the repo market and then the lenders who would be the money market funds or the big funds that wanted a place to park their money and they wanted to make a little interest you know the um, the insurance for deposit insurance only covers $250,000 so these big funds that have much more than that to store somewhere put it in the repo market because they want to make a little interest and they want a place that's something that's secured so the security in the repo market is that the borrower has to post collateral and the borrower pays a little interest for these overnight loans. So that's basically what it is. And it's huge amounts of money trade on the repo market. It's a very big liquidity thing. That's another thing that I think should be public. We should have a central bank that that is accessible to all. You know, it should actually be the top of of a banking system, which is a public I'm just picturing, you know, water flowing <laughs> that everyone can tap into this deep pocket or this deep pool of liquidity of the central bank. Well, I remember this repo crisis that you're describing in 2008. The money markets were in danger, right? There was real panic. Yes. Uh-huh. I remember that. I'm speaking with attorney and author Ellen Brown today's show, Financial System in Transition. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, why do you say that the repo markets aren't used much anymore? Well, just after March, because the central bank made its discount window available. So even J.P. Morgan even the big banks are, are borrowing from the Fed directly from the discount window. They don't they don't need to go to the repo markets. I mean, none of the banks need to go to the repo market. How do you interpret the resignation in 2019 of close to 1,500 CEOs of major American corporations with more resignations to come in 2020? Many of them sold off their shares as they departed. Yeah, well, I think that's another sign that the economy was in trouble. They knew that their companies were in trouble, and now was the time to get out, you know, while the stock was still doing fairly well. Could the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, be at risk because of derivatives bets by banks? Well, we still have a big derivatives problem. It's still a quadrillion-dollar business. And that's what I've heard. That's one reason why we can't go into negative interest rates because 
um, you know how derivatives work. It's really a protection against change that, that would happen, like a change in the value of the currency. So, so derivatives players have bets on both sides. And if you go into negative interest rates, then then they'll lose both ways. It's very complicated. I don't know if I can explain that. But the thing is, yeah, the derivatives is definitely a big risk. Larry Fink, the founder, chairman, and CEO of BlackRock, in an interview said that in addition to profit, companies need to have a social purpose. He said that BlackRock has a corporate stewardship team focused on corporate policies having to do with societal changes. How do you interpret these comments? What is he saying that BlackRock is going to do? Well, it sounds good, and that would be good if that were true, but from what I've read is that all the all the big exchange trade, you know, BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street, they all vote with management. So that means basically management is trying to make as much money as possible. So they're going to vote against the workers, against environmental issues, you know, any of those things. So I haven't seen evidence that BlackRock is actually doing anything that's a public purpose that's not all for profit. But does his statement imply that BlackRock would have the power then to affect corporate policies? I mean, let's say politically. Who knows? Yeah, they do have the power to affect corporate policies, but they don't they aren't using that power in the public interest so far. Well, yeah, it, it depends upon how you define the public interest because people's politics are different. Yeah. But I know they're very powerful and they could definitely get corporations to do what they want. They've bought all the the major media, for example, so they can tell them what to publish or how to slant their stories. And then couldn't they have a big influence on the political stance that a company takes? Yeah, totally. And they're also a big player in the World Economic Forum, which is now talking about, you know, the Great Reset, which is supposedly going to change our economics and our, you know, everything globally, uh, medicine, education, everything's supposed to change. And this is the World Economic Forum is a public-private partnership. I mean, it's all the big companies meet there. It's the, you know, they meet at Davos every year, every January. And this year, the subject is supposedly the Great Reset. And Larry Fink is one of the big players in it, or BlackRock is. So, yeah, they definitely can affect politics and movements because they... They own controlling interests in all the big banks, and they own controlling interests in all the major media, so they can control the message. And, of course, we know that um, the message pretty much controls what people think. If it's in the major media, it's true. That's If it doesn't make it in the major media, it's not officially true. So they can control all that. Now, you brought up the global reset. You write that the concept of a global reset 
was first floated as early as 2014 by Christine Lagarde, then head of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and is said to be a recharacterization of, quote, the New World Order, discussed long, long before that. It was promoted as a solution to the ongoing economic crisis triggered in 2008. So in terms of this new global reset, what do you think that is going to look like? That is perhaps what we're in the midst of right now under the lockdown. Right. Um well, my particular interest and my particular area of expertise is the currency, so there's much talk of a global currency. Now, the question is, who will issue it? It'll definitely be a digital currency. I mean, you could see all the signs of moving toward a digital currency. And um, anyway, there's this ID2020 that was a, a big big major corporations, Microsoft and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, etc., were all part of ID2020, and they were also part of Event 201, which was last October, uh, laid out a whole scenario for what we would do in the event of a pandemic, and we've followed that whole scenario, and so have other countries around the world. So there's there are clearly big interests that are planning the the future and what it's going to look like and it appears to be all about control a sort of totalitarian control or control by technocrats it's not going to be a democracy it's controlled by big corporations and um, you know you used to hear about like David Rockefeller I think said at one time he said he thanked other major media for telling it the way they wanted it told and going along with their plans, which were all at the, was I think those were Bilderberger conventions where they used to discuss the whole New World Order thing. And now they've recharacterized it as the great global reset. But it's basically the same thing, a totalitarian thing where it won't be us in control and it won't be individual countries in control. It will be it will be a corporatocracy. In your article, From Lockdown to Police State, The Great Reset Rolls Out, what is going on in Melbourne, Australia? This is quite shocking. Yeah, well, they seem to be the most draconian of the lockdown measures, and it's not because they have a high infection rate. In fact, they imposed these latest draconian measures after only 11 new reported deaths from the coronavirus, and these were all people in um, nursing homes. So they were all elderly and obviously had other conditions that would contribute to their deaths. So a lockdown really doesn't help people in nursing homes because they're not out roaming the streets anyway. But the lockdown in Melbourne included a curfew after 8 p.m. You're required to stay in your house except for you can only go out for exercise, a maximum of one hour a day, or shopping, and you have to go alone. You can't even take your family members with you. So I don't know what single mothers do who are taking care of a couple of kids at home. Um or caregiving. 
So that's all you can leave your home for. And I saw a video where the police were breaking windows of cars that wouldn't tell them, you know, why they were out or where they were going. If you're going out for exercise, you could only go within, I think, five miles of home. So if you're out in your car somewhere, you have to have an excuse for why you're out. So it's very police state-like, and yet there's doesn't seem to be any justification for it. Why is why are you more likely to spread a virus at night than during the day? You know, why do you have to stay in your house or why is there a curfew at night? Anyway, so there was much discussion of it looked like some sort of an an attempt to control control the population. Some sort of agenda that we're <laughs> that we're not aware of and uh, to me, that's keenly interesting. I mean, there clearly is some agenda going on here with this whole, with this whole virus thing. It's just not logical what's what's happening right now. I mean, the whole idea that all these businesses would be shut down for for what? I mean, there's a lot of evidence that the lockdowns haven't really helped in terms of saving lives. They've actually cost more lives than they say because. There are all the people that weren't getting medical treatment or there are people starving, particularly in third world countries, people starving or children starving due to the lockdown itself. Plus that the test itself is very debatable. The results are not clear and yet they were pushing test, test, test on everybody. And this test that they're using, the PCR test, was shown in January of 2007 to actually create the appearance of an epidemic. This was in a hospital where they thought they had an epidemic, I think, of whooping cough. And uh, so they sent all the workers home who they had tested. And I mean, they had tested like a thousand workers and they thought they had an epidemic. So they sent them all, furloughed them for eight months, I think. And then they tested their blood, I guess. I'm not sure how they did it. But anyway, they tested against the gold standard, which was the actual whooping cough virus and the, none of the people who had tested positive were actually positive for the virus and the, the creator of the PCR test said don't use this to to determine to establish whether somebody is actually sick from a virus or not so anyway the whole lockdown the whole idea that all these businesses should be shut down and we all have to stay home is based on testing that is creating the appearance of an epidemic when there is none. And there are other reasons to think there's a political effort to create the appearance of an epidemic. And why? And who would profit from it? Well, the big corporate <laughs> controllers at the World Economic Forum or the New world, world Order, for one. Well, and of course, the vaccine makers, for another, they are exempted from liability. Well, there are several bills, U.S. acts. One is the 1986 child vaccine bill, and then there's the 2004, I think, or 2005 PREPA Act that exempts them from liability. In other words, you can't sue them if you have um, side effects from their vaccines or from the tests or from anything used for an emergency pandemic. So anyway, there are, are definitely big companies that will profit from the whole thing, but it's still hard to envision who could pull off anything that massive unless it's 
some group that meets regularly, like the World Economic Forum or the um, Bilderbergers that used to meet. Ellen Brown, thank you. Yeah, great talking to you. I've been speaking with Ellen Brown. Today's show has been Financial System in Transition. Ellen Brown is an attorney, researcher, author, and the founder of the Public Banking Institute. She is the author of The Web of Debt, The Shocking Truth About Our Money System and How We Can Break Free, and From Austerity to Prosperity, The Public Bank Solution. She is the author of many books on natural healing, as well as numerous articles on the financial system. Visit Ellen Brown's website at ellenbrown.com. That's ellenbrown.com. Visit the Public Banking Institute's website at publicbankinginstitute.org. That's publicbankinginstitute.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yarrow Mako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what inside yourself.